back to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. This is your host, the Conservative Atheist, and usually I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Brighter Later, but for some reason he's not able to join us today, and so it's just me. Uh, today we're talking to a very intelligent man, uh, the author of a book called In the Know. Uh, it's uh, debunking 35 myths about human intelligence Russell T. by Russell T. Warren. And uh, welcome to the show, Russell T. Warren. Hello, glad to have, glad to be here. So, thirty-five myths debunked. What are the, yeah. what are the various? I know the one, the one myth is, is that that I've always that I always hear, which I always think is ridiculous, is that um, that the IQ test is basically just a test to see how good you are at taking the test, which makes absolutely <laughs> no sense. Yeah, that, that's definitely one of the myths that um, the book addresses. There's 35 chapters, one per myth. And um, yeah, the idea that all oh, these tests are only tell you how well you take tests is, is definitely one of them. That's pretty easy to to show as being incorrect. That was, that was one of the easier chapters to write. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. So I know one of the gentlemen had written, um, had a theory that, you had multiple intelligences, that there wasn't one G, that it was multiple intelligences. What were your, uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, that's a very famous theory from Harvard educational psychologist Howard Gardner. In 1983, he created the, the theory of multiple intelligences. And to be fair to Dr. Gardner, um, it's not an unreasonable idea Unfortunately, um, a lot of the data that rebuts the theory, he just politely ignores. And um, even though in the 90s and the 2000s, the evidence of an, a global single intelligence often measured with IQ as a number, to, as a metric, um, just became so overwhelming. And unfortunately, uh, Gardner has not revised this theory. Um, he claims that there are, depending on which version of the theory you like, um, at least seven separate independent intelligences. And in chapter five of my book, I explain why the evidence, especially the modern evidence, is showing that that's not true. And actually, his theory is um, actually pretty logically incoherent at times. And it, it's difficult to test, which makes it inherently um, not very scientific. Yeah, if I remember right now, maybe I'm misremembering, mis but you said something along the lines that he, you quoted him as saying that, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but even if he was wrong, that it's still the virtuous way to look at things. Yes, yes, that's... that's um, Which sounds like a very strange thing for a scientist to say. Yeah, that's at the end of that chapter, where he basically says, you know, he, um, and I'm paraphrasing too, you know, even at the end of the day, if the bad guys end up being correct, well, life is short, and I think we should spend our time with my theory instead. And yeah, I, I mean, whether life is short or not doesn't change the fact that a theory can be right or a theory can be wrong. And life is short. You know, I, with that in mind, I prefer to spend my time on ideas that are more likely to be correct. You know, even if we can't know to know the truth completely and totally and perfectly, I would rather spend my time on a theory that approximates that truth rather than one that definitely does not yeah so, I, I personally would i prefer um harsh reality over pretty <laughs> fantasy 
uh, yeah, I do too. <laughs> and that's why this intelligence research uh, area fits in pretty well with my attitudes is uh, I, I, I prefer harsh reality, even when sometimes it doesn't make you very popular. Like when I say in the book, for example, um, intelligence tests aren't biased, or when I say, no, they don't um, measure your socioeconomic status, or I'm sorry, preschool does not make people smarter. <laughs> you know, those are popular ideas that um, I don't think I'm winning many friends by writing a book saying all these popular ideas are wrong. And, and no, and I, and I understand, I understand why people wish that was true. Oh, definitely. You know, it's, yeah, it's very difficult to say, hey, this is the way it is. And there's little or nothing we can do about it. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Oh yeah. But, um, but it is I what it is. That, I don't say that environments are irrelevant, but for most people living in non-neglective, non, uh, sorry, non-neglectful, non-deprived environments in wealthy countries, um, we really don't know the specifics of how to make someone smarter permanently. Um, you know, so my book does have some advice, like people need to go to school and don't lock your child in a closet. But the vast majority of my <laughs> readers already did that, you know? Um, so, you know, well, that, that, that's, the, that's the ironic part. Anybody intelligent enough to be reading your book is not going to be doing those things anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when uh, I was in graduate school, my brother um, visited me for because uh, he had a job interview nearby, and um, his wife was pregnant with their first child at the time. And he said, "Oh, tell me how I can make my son smarter." And I said, "Well, um, <laughs> I said send him to school. Don't be abusive." Um, and you know, he and his wife were college educated. They were going to do these things anyway. Right. And you know, he said, "Just keep on doing what you're going to do anyway." And he said, "Well." your field doesn't seem to have much practical use, does it? <laughs> I said, well, I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. It seems like Western countries have already created these environments that are conducive to cognitive development, which, um, you know, is, is very impressive. And also some Eastern societies too have done that. Yeah, we, we, we've, we send people to school. They mm -hmm. live in nice, warm, you know, air-conditioned or warmed homes. Uh, yeah. They have good, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, people eat fast food and stuff, but other than that, I mean, people have, it's not like they're being, you know, deprived of yeah. food to the point where they're a no, foot shorter than they should be. There's no so, famines, there's no severe malnutrition in, in these countries. Um, you know, there's access to school, there's access to language. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty good environment. It's probably the best environment that humans have ever had to grow up in. And Hopefully, uh, middle and low-income countries catch up soon and can also give those environments to their their citizens. Also, I, I would really greatly like to see that. I know that you probably made a lot of people angry when you said that the IQ tests were were adjusted adjusted for different cultures and countries, and that mm -hmm. they weren't they weren't biased, and uh, that the outcomes were the outcomes. I know that had to have ruffled some feathers. <laughs> yeah, and then there's two issues there um, that you bring up. One is the issue of bias, which in the testing world has a very specific definition, is that if you have two people from different populations and they are equal on a trait, then if a test is unbiased, then they will get 
the same score um, if they're equal on the tray, even though they belong to two different populations. Um, that being said, um, that definition says that, hey, there can be differences in groups and differences in test scores, either for individuals or for groups, and the test might still not be biased. And you know, if you want to do a little thought experiment, let's get away from intelligence testing world, a uh, psychological test of pro-social behavior. This is what nerdy psychologists like me call things volunteering, donating to charity, um, helping out others like your neighbor, you know, watering their plants when they're gone, pro-social behavior. Right. Um, if you give a test of pro-social behavior to Catholic nuns and to help, you're going to find a difference between these groups. That doesn't <laughs> right. mean the test is incorrect. It doesn't mean the test is biased against Hell's Angels. It might actually be measuring a, a, a difference. And so I point out in, in the, the book that score differences by themselves are not evidence of bias. That being said, whether a test shows bias has to be examined population by population. And especially for international comparisons, that often hasn't been done. And, and so we often do not know for sure whether a score difference comparing country A to country B is a problem um, or, or, or is a real difference. What we usually do in the psychology world is we renorm and revise the test for each country. So there's intelligence tests designed for Brazil. There's intelligence tests designed for Japan or for South Africa for the US, UK, and we can compare people within those countries to each other, but often the comparisons between countries can get a little iffy. A little murky, yeah. So, um, no, I know, I, I know that I've, I know that I've never heard people that take our position. I take the same position basically you do on virtually everything. You need to so, get to know more people. <laughs> <laughs> but I know people really take umbrage with the idea I mean, like you say that you you and i've said this a million times myself nobody argues nobody with any sense argues that it's all genetic and not some environment of course there's some environmental role i mean that's everything on this planet whether it's plants animals whatever everything is part genetic part yeah. environment well we were just saying when it comes to iq don't lock your kid in the closet right. send them to school those are those are environmental characteristics those you know but it seems like there's a lot of people on the other side of that that say, no, 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 everything is environment and nothing is genetic. There are. Um, and it's been amazing watching. Now, I, I, I'm not old enough to have watched it firsthand, but to have read the old literature and then was in graduate school over 10 years ago, watching it from the, the late 2000s and early 2010s. Um, watching the blank slate idea oh. um, have it have its last gasp within academia and um now we've gotten to the point where it's really uncontroversial to say in a room full of academic psychologists that most if not all behaviors and traits have at least some genetic influence we don't always know how much but um you know, from what I understand from my senior colleagues saying that 30 years ago in the early 90s would have caused a firestorm. And now it just sort of met with yawns. Oh, yeah. Oh, everything's a little bit genetic. <laughs> and 
Well, uh, that may be true in academia, but you, you say yeah. something like that outside of academia, the, the firestorm exactly. will still happen, believe me. That's where I was going, exactly, yes. Outside of um, the public, uh, sorry, outside of academia, in the public, yeah, the idea that everything's partially genetic, every behavior, every trait, um, or, or very close to everyone, um, is partially genetic, is, is extremely controversial, and... Um, it's ironic that as the scientists have moved away from the blank slate, aspects of society are embracing it even more than ever. <laughs> and right. um, that won't end well. Any social movement, any social policy based on an incorrect understanding of humans, at the very best, it's going to disappoint. At the worst, it's going to fail spectacularly. Right. Um, and I would rather base my social policies that I vote for at the ballot box or that I support with donations or online. I'd rather base them on reality. And one of those things is partial genetic influence. Yeah, I, I don't know why people find it so hard. The only thing I can think of, and, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong, is if the people feel like you're robbing them of hope. I think that's some of it or robbing them of free will or agency is right. another, is another way I've seen it, but I, I don't, I don't find it as being hopeless or deterministic at all. In fact, um, one of the last articles I, I wrote before um, I left academia a little over six months ago um, was talking about how we should use genetic tests to identify early on children with a high risk for learning disabilities and, and learning difficulties. And instead of waiting for the kid with dyslexia to fall two or three years behind his or her classmates, and we finally start giving them an intervention in third grade, we might start giving them an intervention in kindergarten before they ever show us any symptoms. And to me, this is the freeing power of genetics. Oh, we know who to give interventions to. We know, um, we we know where to target um, our efforts and for highly um, heritable, highly genetically influenced traits, um, maybe we should be a little more forgiving when people come up short. And I think of intellectual disability as one of those. Assuming someone doesn't have their intellectual disability because of a hit on the head or oxygen deprivation during birth, this is a very strongly genetically influenced mental diagnosis and i'm going to be a lot more forgiving because that that person didn't choose their genes right it's not their fault they have a low iq i'm going to be a lot more forgiving and supportive of 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 um of supports and and benefits for them because i understand the genetic influence is so powerful so i i think that yeah people think it, they worry about loss of hope loss of free will but to me, no, it, it offers more potential for hope and more potential for compassion for other people. Well, if you refuse to see what the problem is, how can you possibly tackle it? Oh, well, people can try to tackle it. But like I said, at best, those interventions will be ineffective. At worst, they're going to crash and burn and fail spectacularly, often um, ruining lives in the process. And, you know, it's not, it wasn't a genetic issue, but in my book, I talk about um, how the U.S. Army 
when it needed when it needed more soldiers to fight the Vietnam War, you couldn't um, start drafting kids in college because their parents vote and get angry, and this is already a politically active group anyway. So they started um, they lowered the IQ threshold for drafting soldiers, mm. and um, they lowered it by almost twenty points. And um, you know, overnight, magically, they had a lot of people who didn't have political power who were suddenly eligible for the draft and these soldiers were killed at a much higher rate um they were more likely to have mental health problems they're more likely to to have to be shipped home earlier and, and it ruined a lot of lives you know people who should have never been off in war were sent to war because the u.s secretary of defense ignored the idea that iq might be important and might be something we need to pay attention to right and don't you think it's also a mistake not to realize that not everybody needs to go to college or should go to college? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> um, uh, I taught for over 10 years at an open enrollment university, and I had some students who could have gone to any of the major flagship universities in the Western U.S., but for various reasons, they came to, to our university. And then I would have students in the exact same class who were functionally illiterate. Right. And this is what happens when you're an open enrollment university, you're designed to serve the community. And, and I liked that mission, but not having admissions criteria, not being able to have a filter there to say, you know what, you need to have a minimum academic aptitude to come here. It, it made my teaching a, a much bigger challenge. Um, and and yeah i saw that firsthand i saw a lot of students who may have been better off instead of majoring in psychology going to the trades program at our at our school or doing on the job training you know for for more menial work or or doing apprenticeships and probably earning a lot more money than i did as an academic psychologist if they become a plumber <laughs> right so. right right you, you know there's a lot of blue collar jobs and i'm not putting blue collar job people down I'm oh really no not. definitely not you should see but, my lawn i i pay, i need to pay a, a landscaper a fortune <laughs> a right, right. <laughs> listen I, I have to admit it i i'm going to i'm going to come clean i i can't do a damn thing I can't screw. A, I can't screw a light bulb in right. I can't screw. If you look at me, I'm a big guy. I, I, you think I'm like, oh, I work, you know, in construction or something. No, I can't do crap. I, I'm totally worthless outside of, outside of just books and and things of that nature. You know, outside of academia, I, I'm I'm completely helpless. I, I just can't. And so, you know, those people make the world go round. The plumbers, the electricians. Yep. Uh, the you know the uh, construction workers everything that they, they make things oh, happen yeah. that I could never make happen. Yeah, when the pandemic came and shut everything down, the plumbers still went to work, the electricians, the construction workers. I mean, you know, I I very much respect people who can do things that I can't, and right. you know, I I don't see anything wrong. Um, I've always said, and I, I got this um, from, from my upbringing, any work that's not drug running or prostitution is honorable work. And I right. think that filtering everybody or, or giving the message that college should be your first priority, no matter what, has been very damaging. It's made it harder to fill these essential. It's probably made some people feel worthless when they dropped out, yeah. whereas they would have succeeded in a different line of training. 
Well, what it does is it sets the student up for failure. Mm -hmm. It makes it more difficult for the professors. Mm -hmm. And and it takes spots from people that might be a little bit more deserving. Or you end up at an open enrollment university where your graduation rate <laughs> right. in six years is less than 40%. So I attended, I attended the University of Cincinnati. My father got his, his uh, I'm sorry, I, I attended, uh, I said it backwards. I attended Ohio State University. My father attended University of Cincinnati. That's where he got his uh, master's and his doctorate. And, uh, and I'm, I don't know about the University of Cincinnati, but at Ohio State, I'm telling you now, there, there were students that sh just should not have been there. <laughs> they did not belong there. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't critical of them. I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't try to be a snob, but they just didn't belong. It just yeah. wasn't going to work out for them. There's other things they could have done that would have been better, you know, better time spent. And but it I is, it my, is what it is. I think my old institution did the best it could to serve people. It was a very affordable school. So if a student did, you know, attend for a year, year and a half, and then dropped out without a degree, they weren't shouldered with a lot of student debt. They still got some um, I'm not going to say, you know, that 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 policy was a mistake. I did see some good of it. But on the other hand, yeah, it made life tough for the professors. And, it, um, you know, it set a, a lot of students up for for failure or disappointment. And it certainly didn't serve those star students I had um, very well. But, um, you know, we did the best and, and my former colleagues are still doing their best. And um you know, it, it's not an easy job. And one of the reasons why it's not easy is because an open enrollment policy means you're essentially ignoring individual differences in interests, motivation, and academic aptitude. Right. So uh, what are some of the other myths that you debunked? One of the, what, are the, what are some of the main ones you'd like to touch on? Um, one that I really like <laughs> that um, I wish more people knew and this is my background as educational psychologist is the idea that every child is gifted. Oh, uh, I read that part of your, I read that part. Of, I remember that part of your book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's the one that got my, that that's the chapter where my frustration came through the most. Cause right. I I've heard it a lot and it, it's simply not true. Um, <laughs> there are some kids out there who can do the whole K to 12 curriculum in nine 10 or 11 or 12 years instead of 13 right and there's other students out there who need more than that amount of time and they either end up not graduating or they drop out or they're in a special education system where they get a couple extra years and i wish we had a system in the u.s where that said you know what if you need 13 years to finish this up great if you need less fine if you need a couple years more great we all have our different abilities but that's right. not where we are and we either get a total denial of those differences or we get the claim that every child is gifted and inevitably school systems that try to implement this idea that every child is gifted so let's put every child into advanced science or let's put every child into algebra in seventh grade right inevitably again at best, disappointment. At worst, you get spectacular levels of failure. Well, I, I remember that you said that. Uh, I remember one of the things you said in the book was when you try to pretend that everybody is gifted, it, 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 it gifted loses all all of its meaning. 
I believe that's what you said. I believe that's what you said. And and I was like, yeah, I mean, the the problem is, is is that, or the one that drives me crazy. You tell me if you've heard this before, I'm sure you have, is where people say, well, little Billy, they're just not challenging him enough. He's bored. No, he's not bored. He's got an IQ of 80. He's not not bored. (laughs) He just just doesn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. In some cases, yeah, that, that that's what it is. There are kids who are bored and then therefore slack off. And one thing that they have found in, in the gifted ed world is for very bright children, if you don't challenge them, they do finally get to that calculus class. They do finally get to college. Right. They don't know how to study. And, and they've never, you know, they think that you just sit back on the back row and half listen and you get A's. But no, that, very few people could get past calculus doing that. That that creates um, you know huge huge problems for for them um, when they do actually get that challenge. So yeah, I'm in favor of gifted education programs um, um, for that reason, and, and and just to challenge people more anyway. How how do you feel about these? Um, how do you feel about all of these charter schools coming out? Because I'll tell you, I'm I'm familiar with a couple of charter schools in the past that were essentially scam schools. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm in a state where charter schools are very popular. I live in Utah and, um, you know, it's, it's not fair to paint charter schools with, with the broad brush. And it's just like, it's not fair to do the same for private or, or public schools either. Um, there's a lot of self-selection that goes on, um, into charter schools. And, And I see that, um, I see that in my community. And so that makes it harder to do research on them. Um, I'm more in favor of, of charter schools and other types of school choice just for the abstract libertarian argument that a monopoly is probably not good and we need to give people choice. But um, I'm not convinced that... Um, the strong academic achievement differences you see between private and charter and, and public schools um, is due to what the schools are doing. Uh, I'm not right. convinced of that. Um, but you're right. There are charter schools are scams um, and, and there's scams on the left. There's scams on the right. You know, on the left, you get charter schools where we don't do grading here and it's all about your feelings. And if you, <laughs> and on the right, you get charter schools where it's, you know, rote memorization and, you know, and, and character education is an important part of the curriculum. So, I mean, I think there are scam charter schools. I think there are good ones. And, um, you know, I don't have a strong opinion beyond, well, it's probably better than the monopoly <laughs> that we have in most states. Um, I'm not looking for a chart for my children. You know, I, I figure right. I, I put my money where it's where my mouth's worth. Blah, I put my money where my mouth is. And um, my kids attend a public school. I'm not looking at a charter, but I don't think that all public schools are great. And I don't think that all, all charters are either or scams or whatever. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so basically, I mean, the, the bottom line really is in, in modern, in modern Western civilization, 
there really is no way to improve the IQ of a, of a child. I, I noticed that I, I noticed that you touched on a few things that I that I've talked about in the past. There was that uh, study in the '70s of the adopted children, um, black children adopted uh, in uh, very impoverished areas from birth, um, Mm-hmm. and it seemed to give their IQ a bump uh, at, you know in early stages. But then later on in life, their IQ is basically normal out to about the same as the people that that left stayed in the community and were not adopted. Um, Um, yeah, I believe you're talking about the Minnesota transracial yep, adoption study, which that's which the is one. the largest um, transracial adoption study ever ever conducted. Um, yeah, it started in the '70s. The last report was in 1992. Um, which means we need to update it, but for some reason, no one seems to be interested. <laughs> uh, that's another issue. Um, but yeah, um, being adopted into these mostly middle-class or, or wealthy um, white Minnesotan homes did provide a, a large boost at age seven to these um, children's IQ, but um, 10 years later, age 17 or 18, Um, most of that boost had, had gone. It was higher than um, the average African-American IQ at the time. But how much of that was because these kids were in Minnesota, which is a wealthier state, and, and you know, African-Americans, at least at the time, tended to fare better in Minnesota than they did most of the rest of the country. It's a matter of debate. There wasn't a control group of, similar kids who are raised by their biological parents in, in African-American homes. And so there's a debate about how much boost it was, but there's no debate that most of the benefit from being raised in a wealthy white home or, or middle-class white home, um, most of that benefit was gone by late adolescence. Um, but how much of the boost remained is, is a matter of debate, which is why I wish someone would do a follow-up study, but That would be has nice. Hasn't happened in 30 years, unfortunately. Well, nobody wants crucified, so. It, exactly. I, I think that, that um, well, I think just a matter, it's a matter of, of funding. Could you imagine the, the uproar that would happen in Congress if, if the National Oh, Science my God. Foundation said, we're going to test that gets adopted into white, white homes and see if that makes them smarter? I mean, just the question would, would get certain... Batten down the hatches. Congress people angry at the NSF. So I mean I don't I don't hold any ill will to the funders. I get why they do what they do. Yeah. So, um, what was the other? Uh, you know, one of the thing, main things I wanted to ask you, I, I don't remember you touching on it in the book, and I've always wondered this, and I, I felt maybe you might have some insight to it. Um, so, male female IQs, uh, uh, the average is about the same. Mm However, -hmm. the distribution is so different. Why do you think that is? It seems like the females cluster towards the middle, and the males are, are tend to cluster at the at the polar opposites. Yeah, I mean, that is a topic of um, chapter 27 of the book. I do talk about that. Maybe I did. Okay, so maybe I missed that part. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, yeah, males tend to be more variable in their IQ scores. Not enough that you would notice it in day-to-day -day functioning. But um, yeah, that means that female scores tend to cluster slightly more to the middle. Male scores tend to spread out more. And where you notice it is... when you start looking at people in the extremes.
and, and I have some some statistics from the book um, for examples of that. Um, somewhere between 55 and 70 percent of people with intellectual disabilities in the U.S. are male. Sure. On the other extreme, um, men win almost 70 percent of games in Jeopardy. Right. So- you know what? You know, it's funny you said that because a comedian, I just heard a comedian make the joke that every time I watch Jeopardy, it's always guys winning on Jeopardy. I, I don't remember the name of the comedian, but I, I just 70, heard it just in the last 24 hours. I heard that joke. Yeah. But- and and you you notice this when you look at the extremes. You don't notice it if you're in the middle because differences and variability um, are more noticeable when you get to those tails where you do have slightly more males than females. Now, why is a question no one really knows? Males are more variable in a lot of other traits. They're more variable in their height, for example, and their weight. Right. Um, They're more variable in other anatomical things, especially in the brain. And it's not just unique to, to humans. Males tend to be more variable in most traits, um, in most species, but especially mammals. And the evolutionary psych um, theory I've heard about this has been that if males have to compete for their mates, then your, your sex might be taking more risks to have a slight, you know, a, a slight advantage over, over companions, you know, or, or over competitors. And so the idea is that being more variable is more of a high risk, high reward reproductive strategy. Um, you know, yes, you, you risk maybe being one of those losers in the lower end of a tail of, of height or, or IQ or whatever, but roll the dice. And if you win, you win bigger than you would have if your sex didn't have a, as wide of a distribution. That that's a theory. I don't know if it applies very well to other species or to, to every traits where males are more variable. Um, so, you know, I, I think it is probably best to keep that into theory, but yeah, that difference in variability is not unique to IQ. Um, in fact, it's the rule. It's true in opinion scales in humans. It's true in, in number of crimes and other behaviors they commit. It's, it's true in a lot of things and so much so that it's the rule rather than the exception. When you, when you find females who are more variable than males, it usually tends to be things like bust size and embroidery skill, like extremely (laughs) feminine or sex stereotype traits. Um, Well, could it be this? Could it, could it be that, that being slightly more clever when it comes to hunting would give you an advantage? Oh yeah, definitely. But on the other side, you have to consider the, um, the other tale of, well, then why did, a a larger, you know, percentage of people all end up being slightly less clever at, at hunting than would have otherwise. Um, probably has something to do with sexual dimorphism. Probably has something to do with um, sex, uh, sex specific selection, which, you know, it is typical in mammal species. Um, but we don't know all the details, but it's a fun, exciting topic to study. 
One of the things that you mentioned in the book that I was, that I think a lot of people would be surprised by is I know that there's supposed to be somewhat of a correlation between the size of your brain, the volume and intelligence. And you mentioned that, and actually in the, in the distant past that the brains were actually bigger. Yes. Um, and, and that, that's the thing with brain size. If you look at, and here we go with sexual dimorphism again, male brains are larger than female brains on average, but the average IQ is, is approximately equal. So brain size can't be the whole story, but when you compare individuals within sex with, you know, other members of the population they belong to, then yeah, larger brains are smarter brains, but Neanderthals had larger brains than modern humans. And even humans 30, 40,000 years ago had larger brains than humans do today. Hmm. Um, so you know, brain, brain size, it's tricky. Um, don't, you know, don't go comparing male and female brains and don't go comparing Neanderthal brains with Homo sapiens brains. Um, but comparing people in their generation, in their sex, in their population to one another, yeah, larger brains are, are smarter brains in general. So do you think that, um, I know this is a kind of a, kind of a difficult question to ask answer i think but do you think evolutionary wise we've we've come we've we're come cl close to the end of how far we can make our brains um develop no no um i'll give i'll give you an example um all four of my children were born by c-section and that's because the first two their heads were too large to exit my wife's pelvis and you know after the first two c-sections yeah poor woman <laughs> after the first two c-sections the doctor said any future babies have to be born with a c-section um up until the mid early 20th century uh, a cesarean section was extremely dangerous um operation for a woman and the size of the the pelvic opening uh, was very much a constraint on human brain size, especially in infants, um, brain and, and head size. And so I think that we could have medical advances and, and other environmental advances that can lift some of those constraints um, on brain size, on intelligence, on, on human size. No one knows the future, but um, evolution never stopped. And until reproductive success is uncorrelated with everything, which means everyone had to reproduce at random, evolution will never stop. Um, so no, I don't think we've reached a limit. Whether we'll actually go any higher, not in the question, but I don't think anyone knows. The future. Um, One of the things that I, I found interesting that I learned many years ago is um, that apparently Asian women have, have larger cervix and and uh, caucasian women have slightly smaller and black women have slightly smaller and and they they argue that that that, that might explain um that the the, the reason why that this the the cervix the opening is is different in sizes and can allow for more size is to allow for the, the larger size heads the larger brains is there any have you heard anything like that before or is there anything that any validity to that do you think I've heard theories like that before. I'm not an expert in that sort of thing. Um, I just use the example of, of C-sections because 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 
that being unable to push the first baby out would have been a death sentence to my wife and Oof, yeah. probably the baby. Right. Um, and then, you know, before never would have been born. Um, but because of this medical advance, we have now you know, four, three or four larger head children in the world. <laughs> who's <laughs> right. been successful in passing on those genes. So was my wife. Um, but no, I don't know about anything about group differences in that. I just use it as an example of um, environmental changes, technological changes, medical advances can can unleash evolution still today. Now, I, I know I know you spoke about uh, lead and lead poisoning that would, could reduce the you know the uh, IQ of children. Um, I've I've heard the theory that one of the great advances of Rome was the aqueducts, but the problem was is they made them with lead, which led to a lot of problems. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. I'd have to look it up, but um, I do know that there is lead content in the bones from um, Roman era um, burials and graves. Um, they use the lead compound also to sweeten wine. Um, wow. And I used to teach my students about um, lead poisoning and its effects on IQ. You know, I said, where, where do most kids get lead, lead overdoses today? And of course, my students say, oh, eating paint chips. And I say, you know, it sounds like a dumb joke. Oh, how dumb could you be to eat paint chips? But lead has a slightly sweet taste and that's why a little baby crawling on the floor who might eat a little fleck of paint would go back for more because it has a little bit of a sweet taste well the romans sometimes sweetened wine with a lead compound they knew it was poisonous but I, i'd have to look up what the lead concentration um was um, I would be extremely surprised if it's as high as what we were seeing in the U.S. in the mid-20th century. Right. If you read, if you read these old um, lead poisoning um, um, articles from the 1970s, uh, what they considered low lead levels today would be considered three, four times higher than the allowed limit. Wow. I'd be really surprised if ancient Rome had that level of, of lead poison. Um, and I doubt that whatever lead they have, I doubt that it, it would have impacted society. You know, it didn't cause the fall of Rome, for example. So, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think it caused the fall of Rome. I think, I think there was uh, I think that Rome suffered from a lot of the things that we suffer yeah. from today, unfortunately. <laughs> I think we're going the same way. We're circling the bowl, unfortunately. Uh, we're a little bit better off than Europe, but not much. We're not much. No, we're not far behind them. Uh, we're only a generation behind Europe. <laughs> right. At best. Yeah, it's oof, sad. But uh, yeah, so what, what would you like to see if you could if you could design the curricula of, of you know, say elementary and high school? What how would you what changes would you make if there was any changes to be made? Um. I do a few things. I, I would number one allow variations in pacing. Well, like I said before, there, there's some kids who don't need all 13 years to go through the K to 12 curriculum. There's some kids who need more. Um, yeah, and we already do this a little bit in the United States, the middle and high school level. But you know, I, I think we should have multi-age classrooms lower. 
uh, in lower grades. And I think that um, an education suffers from a lot of a lot of fads. And I'm going to sound sold fashion and cliche, but um, you know, I do think it needs to focus more on basic skills training than it does now. Um, and, and there's a lot of value to knowing facts and the current fad of, well, I'm supposed to teach critical thinking, or I'm supposed to teach kids how to think, um, to me that that's, you know, beyond teaching about a couple of logical fallacies or beyond teaching how people can lie with statistics that that's not a valuable use of time, right. you know, when, when, everything that your political opponent does makes them Hitler. That clearly shows that people <laughs> right. understand history. And you need historical facts to understand when these analogies make sense and when they don't. You know, oh, it's unprecedented that so-and-so president I, did, I didn't like did this. Well, no, it's not unprecedented. You know, read a, read a history book. I, I think, I think... Americans need a wider range at their disposal. And I think that we need to get rid of this idea of teaching abstract, broad, um, not very measurable skills like creativity and creative thinking and, and critical thinking. And um, I, I would make sure that, you know, there is a, there is a depth of knowledge of, of science, of mathematics that, that everyone can read before they, they leave elementary school, at least if, if their IQ is high enough that that's possible. Um, and I don't know if you can hear my kids in the background. Oh, that's fine. That's not a, not a big deal at all. But very, um, very, very little, but that's fine. Yeah. I, I would, I would make it a very practical fact-based um, curriculum pace at each child's level. Cause you know, some kids will will learn all the state capitals in a week. Some will need three months. That's okay. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. We should embrace those differences because they're not going to go away. No, they're not. I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, it, it drives me crazy that people are determined, again, that, to make people go to college. There, When I was in, in high school, there was something called the Apollo Career Center. And it was like kind of like an alternative high school for anybody that was uh, – a uh, junior or, or above and they could finish out their last two years of high school going to this place and they would learn how to become an auto mechanic or a welder or you know whatever the case might be and i thought that was a really good idea for a lot of the students a lot of the students were struggling and that was a really good idea instead of instead of them just pushing forward and and trying to go to college mm -hmm. so um i think there needs to be more of that i really do um i agree i agree so, uh, so we've touched on many things. Is there any other, other, uh, other myths that you'd like to debunk? Um, to touch on. I mean, the, the, there's 35 of them, and I love them. Right, all. it's a lot, a lot, lot to go through. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I look at the table of contents, and, and so it's like having a th 35 little babies that you all love. Um, to, um, <laughs> right. You know, I, I do. Um, I mentioned this offhand earlier, but um, I, gosh, I wish I could get people to not be so in love with preschool. 
there, there's no evidence that preschool causes long-lasting positive benefits and there's actually some evidence that it causes harm and like i said earlier i put my money where my mouth is none of my kids have attended preschool um there you go you think, and, you think maybe a lot of it is is just mom needs a break and that's that's the reality of preschool that's probably some of it and if that's why you want to send your kid to preschool great more power to you or maybe mom wants to join the the workforce again right um but uh, there are so many people who say that Head Start or, or preschool or or making sure that preschool is more academic, that these things cause lifelong benefits for for people. And, and there's no evidence that there's any benefits that, that last longer than the end of kindergarten. And there's multiple studies that actually show that kids randomly assigned to attend preschool actually perform worse by mid-elementary school. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that that's one myth I, I really <laughs> want to get out there is that sorry, you know, preschool's not helping your kid academically, although you know, maybe there are social benefits for some children. Maybe there are family benefits if, if a a caregiver can return to the workforce. I recognize that in the book, but it doesn't raise IQ and it doesn't make kids perform better in school. I I yeah, I, th I mean, it's it's a good idea. I think if 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 you really need to go back to work, but mm -hmm. if at all possible, to me, if if you know the the optimal circumstance, and I realize that not everything in life, yeah, is not everything's perfect, but the optimal circumstance would be the father working and the mother taking care of the children. I think that's the I think that's the most nurturing possible way. Otherwise, you have children being raised by people that you don't know their values, you don't know what might be going on. Um, yeah, there was just a teacher recently that was fired because she was telling her uh, high school uh, English class that don't call pedophiles pedophiles just and don't make fun of them because they want to have sex with five year old children. Oh call them uh, what was it called um, a map? Um, oh, minor attracted person. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. That I I couldn't. I mean, thankfully this woman was fired, but yeah, uh, I. Like, well, you know, I well, and, and to be fair, you know, every, every circumstance is different and, and some people don't have an option and it is best for their, their child to attend preschool. I work from home now. Um, and before I, I, you know, when I was a professor, I, I had a, um, a lot more flexibility with my schedule. And so um, it's really easy. And, and my wife's a stay at home mom. It's really easy for us to say, ah, we're not going to send our kids to, to preschool. Other families don't have that option. I recognize that. And in the book, I say preschool doesn't have to raise IQ to be good for a kid. Right. But let's stop pretending it does raise IQ so we can focus on the things it does do um, instead of focusing on wishful thinking or, or myth. I suppose I think I, I, I think you probably agree with me on this. I think I think that it's better if teachers just focus on teaching children and stop trying to push a political agenda. Oh, I think that politics contaminates everything. One of the best yeah. things that happened to me was getting married and having kids. I don't have time to lose or you know, <laughs> read, read political blogs or whatever. I don't have time for that garbage. I've, I've got to get kids to bed soon. Um, I have four kids now, so. Um, but you know, you know, I'm I'm, I'm half I'm half Jewish, and I'll tell you, there's no better time in the world to be a Nazi than right now. Because everybody's called a Nazi. So, 
you get lost in the shuffle. I mean, who would <laughs> no would know the real Nazis? I mean, who would know? Yeah, exactly. Just blend in now. Um, but I mean, I think I think, and I have a a, a piece coming out um, later this year or early next year about this. I think that activism and the search for truth um, are inherently going to clash sometimes because activism is about a goal. The search for truth is about finding out what is damn the consequences. And so that's why I get really nervous when scientific journals take political um, positions. And I think education is part of that search for truth. I get really nervous when teachers think that their job is being activist or, or professors think they need to take a political stand in the classroom. And, and I get really nervous about that because politics contaminates everything. It makes, it takes your eye off the ball from that search of truth. And with how polarized this country is now, inevitably any position you take is going to alienate 50% of, of your audience. And right. I think the best thing teachers, I think the best thing scientific journals, scholarly societies can do is to take the position of not taking a position. Right. Be as neutral as humanly possible. Yeah. We can't always be fully neutral, but right, right. You know, I, I try, I tried in my book um, to be as respectful of different um, points of view. I, I did have a British reader though, say that it's a very American book that I say, okay, here's what, the American left believes here's what the American right believes. Here's how intelligence fits into those. And, but uh, I guess that's a small price to pay to try to, to walk a line and being American. I, I found that easier to do with, with the American perspective. Um, Cause I, I think that the research on intelligence does fit both worldviews approximately equally well i mean if you're a democrat you're not going to like me saying that universal preschool is probably a waste of money right you know and if you're a republican you're not going to like the chapter where i say hey here's how we can use iq research to fatten up the welfare state and make it more generous so <laughs> right. if anyone comes out of it equally angry at me that's that's my goal so since you've said that I'm curious, who would you, if you were to give a list, and I, I don't know that you would or want to, but who would you give the list as your, uh, or one person or multiple people, it's up to you, or, or publications, who would you give your strongest, uh, would think your strongest critic would be of this book and your positions? Is there anybody that stands out in your mind? Um, that's an extremely good question. Thank you. <laughs> I try um, to only ask the good ones. <laughs> yeah, no, no, really. Um, I think some of my um, my best critics would be some of my colleagues in the intelligence research world, because um, because they would know where I'm being a little too cautious. They would know where I'm I'm maybe not cautious enough and going beyond the data. Um, this this branch of psychology, as important as it is, is, is incredibly neglected. Um, I did a, a study with a student where we, we looked at university catalogs and we found that courses on intelligence were extremely rare. Um, and so I think my colleagues, um, even the ones I cite heavily, 
um, would be the best critics of the book because oh, okay. they're they're one of the few they're, you know they're they're the few people who would um, who'd be able to point out where where my thinking isn't a, isn't as strong um, to give a couple of specific names um, you know I would of Detterman who started the the journal Intelligence I know for a fact that he is um, more of a proponent of ideas like emotional intelligence than I am. Um, if you interview him, I, I'm sure he could point out to you, you know, at least three or four chapters where he thinks I got it wrong. Um, I also respect greatly, even though um, I disagree with him sometime, uh, the behavioral geneticist, um, Elliot Tucker Drob. I think that he would um, definitely be able to, to take issue with some of this. And so I'm not worried about Joe Schmo on on social media saying right. I got it completely wrong and discrediting the book. I'm worried about some of my colleagues I respect the most. Gotcha. <laughs> saying, uh, Russell, you completely don't understand this citation and that discredited chapter 12 or whatever. You I, know, I, I it took me about two days to read the book. And uh, I have to say woo, that I, I, yeah, and I, I have to say that I, uh, I agreed with most of the things you said. Oh, that's I, nice. I I really did. I thought you did an excellent job. I was very impressed, um, and uh, I'm I don't give out compliments lightly. Believe me, I'm oh, I'm a very harsh critic. But yeah, I think you did an excellent job, and I really I really am I'm glad that I sat down and read the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I that's why I'm, I think probably uh, forgot a few things here and there because I kind of I blazed through it because I wanted to make sure that I got it read before we before we had this interview. No, and there fine. was all sorts of things that happened because <laughs> I was supposed to read it like a week ago and then it just, I had to hurry up and get it done. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Um, Thank you. So, I wrote it for the so nobody. I, I wrote it to be accessible and, um, you know, if it is understandable and, and enjoyable, you can thank my my two then students who read every chapter and kicked me in the butt when I sounded too much like a professor. <laughs> there you go. So uh, so I'm kind of surprised, though, that nobody demonized you, because I know that uh, after Charles Murray came out with uh, the bell curve, I mean, he was the devil himself. Yeah, and still a lot of people. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, he went. He went. He went and did some. Uh, Try to give a speech at some university, and he was attacked. And oh, yes, Middlebury. I yeah, and the woman was attacked, and she had to have like, a neck brace on or something. And uh, I don't know. I yeah. forget all what happened, but like, Jesus. Yeah, I. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit nervous when the book came out because, yeah, although I try to stick to facts as much as possible, and I try to be politically and socially neutral. Um, the blank Slaters who are ascending in their social power right now, um, I knew that they wouldn't like it. And I knew that extremists who already have their preset ideas and think that IQ research is going to support them are also going to be upset at the book. Right. Um, and the, I, I think a couple things um, happen that, that helped me dodge that. I think number one is that I'm not, a big target um you know I, I i don't work in academia anymore but at the time i was at an open enrollment university in utah where most people you know haven't even heard of the school <laughs> um it, i think it would have been very different if i were at yale 
or like the late Arthur Jensen, if I had been at Berkeley, I, I think, I think that helped is that, you know, I was a professor at a very obscure university teaching university. Um, I also think indirectly the pandemic um, was part of, uh, of that. Oh gosh. The book was released in the U S on Halloween, which was a Saturday right before a national election during a pandemic no one wanted to talk about iq when the book came out <laughs> right well and, and you're uh, to be, be fair you're you're pretty affable you're pretty affable so it, that, okay. that has to have some effect i would think and, and i think also it helps that online you know i'm i'm not an arguer i'm not like throwing bombs on twitter i'm not you know i i don't like contention but I, I do think, even though it wasn't good for book sales, I think as far as not getting a target on my back, you know, having a, the book released on Halloween on a Saturday <laughs> when no one, uh, when everyone's thoughts were turned to other things helped. And so, no, I haven't been demonized. I've seen some negative comments on online, on social media. Um, but, you know, there were never any complaints to my department chair. There weren't protests in my university. Um, I, I haven't gotten hate mail. I did get um, a phone call from a lawyer in the area who begged me not to release it when he saw the chapter list, but that's like the worst it's gotten. Gotcha. He begged you not to release it. That's strange. Oh yeah. Yeah. He begged me not to think of what this will do to our divided society. And I said, why are you afraid of, <laughs> I said, why are you afraid of the truth? <laughs> I mean, that, 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 idea of knowledge might be bad for society people have been saying that since they would they would have burned you at the stake a couple hundred they would have burned you at the stake a couple hundred years ago yeah i mean the (laughs) idea of knowledge might harm society has been an argument since socrates you know in the academy in athens i mean that's that's one of the easiest censorship arguments to to debunk (laughs) right I completely agree. Um, now you, did I misunderstand it? Did you say you're about ready to, you're, you're thinking about, or you're in the process of writing another book? Uh, I am thinking about a book. Um, I have a couple of ideas in my head and there's some days I wake up and, you know, I want this, you know, this will be my next book. That one will be my next book. I haven't decided anything definite. I like to write. I always have. Um, and I can do it very quickly. Um, I wrote in the know, first draft in um 11 months and that was taking weeks off here and there um well yeah i've always been able to write quickly um and so i'll I'll do something else but i've promised my wife that i won't start the next book until our youngest child's in kindergarten and that's that's three years away because um you know especially now that i'm not in academia now i have a, a nine to five job um I, I have to write at nights and that, that takes its toll on my family. Um, so two quick questions. And if it's too personal, you don't have to, you don't have to fine. answer. Um, what made you decide to leave academia and do you miss academia? Um, no, this is not too personal at all. Um, I have a, a post on uh, my blog and my personal website, russellwarren.com that explains this. Um a lot of it was um, just the money 
in real dollar terms, my um, even with promotion, even with merit pay raises, et cetera, in real dollar terms in 10 years, my salary had gone up less than 10%. Right. But in that 10 years I had married and I'd had four kids. My family was much, <laughs> much larger than it was. It was just a single guy on that salary. Um, and then on top of it, my university announced that faculty would only be considered for merit pay raises once every five years. And I, oh, yeah. I looked at my, my oldest, um, who was seven at the time. I thought, I need to be able to get more than two raises between now and when he graduates high school. Like that, right. that's not, a, that's not a crazy economic goal to have. Um, and then also just policies were changing at my old university. And I, and I realized that I'd fallen into um, a pay trap where I could go to another school and temporarily it would be a pay reduction, but, the pay ceiling would be higher later. And so I, I was in this catch 22. I can either take a pay cut now in the hopes that it will pay off in five years, or I can stay where I am and have a much lower pay ceiling. So there was that plus policies changing. Um, and so now, now I work in the tech industry um, and oh, okay. quality of life's higher, I actually work fewer hours and get paid more. Um, you know, and now I'm working from home and, that helps with with the family um but yeah i mean the details are are on my um are on but my you, website i had so but, many people asking me but do you miss being a professor um there are pieces i miss i miss being paid to write and think right about what i want to write and think about now i do research for my employer and whatever my manager says is important that's what i'm writing and thinking about um, it's not bad. It's not boring, but it's not my passion the way psychology was. Um, I miss uh, my first work trip. I, I was flown to Silicon Valley for two days of, of strategy meetings. At the same time, all my old colleagues in the International Society for Intelligence Research were in Vienna in a 17th century or 18th century lecture hall at the university of vienna oh wow <laughs> i was like i'm in a i'm in a silicon valley box that's designed <laughs> to be like right. minimalistic architecture and, and talking about strategizing for the second half of the fiscal year <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> okay that that sucks i miss academia that so i mean I miss my colleagues. I miss particular people. I miss students. I, I miss my old coworkers at my old university. Yeah. So I miss people. I miss being able to write and think. I miss um, a department chair who checked on me literally once a year. There you go. We can't getting beat that. Used to, yeah, getting used to my manager having weekly meetings with me was was, was a <laughs> yeah. Well, once a year to a weekly meeting. That's a little bit different. Yeah. But my wife was like, you realize that most people see their boss more than once a week, right? Right. So, I mean, Still, like, I once a year, pieces. that's not bad. Yeah, I miss pieces, but on the balance, it's been a good change. And um, Well, you're a pragmatist. You had, you had to take care of your family. Yeah, I had to take care of my family. Um, I was working more and feeling like I was I was getting less out of it. Um and just policies my old school were, were becoming unfavorable. And um, 
Um, you know, if, if someone did say, hey, we'll give you your same salary, come back to academia, I, I would take it. I would probably try to make sure that some of those policies and things I didn't make, you know, weren't there, but right. um, I'm happier on the balance. And, and so is my family. My wife loves me not staying up till 2 a.m. Manuscripts for journals. And, you know, my, my kids like me having a lot more flexibility about when I can take time off of work. You know, my life doesn't revolve around the school year anymore. And right. I don't miss the grading. Grading was the worst. Yeah, that's my that's what my dad used to complain about. But a lot of times he would have uh, he would have uh, his assistants do that. But, but yeah, I tried he, to I've tried to offload it whenever I could. But when finals week rolled around and your your teaching assistants were studying for their finals, man, it was pretty much just me. Right. Okay. Well, I I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, this uh, interview and yeah. you've been excellent. I really appreciate uh, everything you've said. I've enjoyed the book, uh, whatever new book you come out with in the future. I look forward to reading it and I'm sure I will. Yeah. Keep um, an eye on it sometime between, you know, five, eight years from now. <laughs> Hold on a second. Here. Let me get my photo. It's like a mark the calendar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, was there anything you'd like to touch upon before we wrap things up? No, I think we covered all the great stuff. Um, you're, you know, you asked some great questions and um, about this for hours. And so um, probably best to have me wrap up now if you don't want this episode last two or three hours. You know, you know, I, I appreciate, I appreciate you coming on. I, I, I wish, I don't know what happened to my co-host. I, I assume something happened. Uh, he was really, really excited uh, about interviewing you as well. And it's just unfortunate he couldn't have been here, but, uh, but, uh, cause I, I know he had like a whole laundry list of questions he wanted to go over with you. So, mm -hmm. but it, you know, things happen, I guess. So yeah. maybe, maybe next time, if, if there's another time that you can do an interview, you know, sometime in the future, um, maybe we can work that out. Awesome. So. I'd love to come back. Okay. Thank you again for showing up. Uh, again, that is Russell T. Warren. Uh, and, uh, he wrote the book, uh, in the know debunking 35 myths about the human intelligence okay mr warren or professor warren i thank you very much and you have a great evening not professor anymore <laughs> not professor anymore that's right that's right mr warren you have a great evening too thank you take care bye okay folks this has been the conservative atheist the conservative atheist podcast uh, we're wrapping things up now uh, again we drop a podcast once a day monday through friday uh, after midnight, so Sunday going into Monday, uh, 12 or 1 a.m. Monday morning, and the last one is Thursday into Friday, so 12 or 1 Friday morning, and we try to have the best possible guests and the best possible interviews and the best possible topics. Uh, we go anywhere from one hour to two hours to three hours. It all depends on the topic. It all depends on the, the guest we're interviewing, uh, and uh, it depends on a lot of factors. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and if you've enjoyed this material as much as I have, uh, please feel free to, to subscribe. Uh, for some reason, it's like pulling teeth to get people to give a uh, review. So please, whether you, whether you want to tell me to go to hell and never make another podcast, or that you love me and you want to make, need me to make more podcasts or anywhere in between, please leave a review. Everybody listens. Nobody leaves reviews. I'm not really sure what the problem is with that. But please leave a review. I would be so grateful, even if it's a negative review. 
Um, I just don't want the listens. I want the reviews. I want the feedback. I crave the feedback. All right, folks. Uh, again, this Saturday is going to be, I'm going to start the bonus episode. So there'll be a bonus episode this Saturday. So Friday Friday morning going into uh, Saturday after 12.01 a.m. Saturday morning. And uh, everybody, you have a great night. Take care.